This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike. And today on the show, Josh and I are talking with Jay Harkrider. And Jay's got his hands in quite a few businesses in the real estate industry. But on today's show, we're talking with Jay mostly about the fintech company that was born from his other real estate ventures, Foxen. Early on, we get into some of the early decisions that led Jay and his partners to success on the real estate side. In particular, choosing to build property management into the company rather than outsourcing the management of their properties. We believed that building a management platform was necessary, but there were times when, because it's very difficult, the hiring process, just generally, the X's and O's of building a management platform are, are difficult and trying and the profitability is not substantial. That was part of our business that we sometimes questioned whether we were making the best decision and it was the best use of our time to build that platform versus just focus on being an asset manager. I look back today and I wouldn't do it any other way because I'm truly understanding and being able to manage and dictate the business plan and execute the business plan because we had the management company was hugely valuable to us and it also enabled our ability to find equity. Later, we talk about how Jay and his team came to the realization that there was a problem in the real estate industry focused around rental insurance and tracking tenant policies. Property managers don't have the time to chase renters for renters insurance. Everybody requires renters insurance, but nobody actually has a good way to manage the compliance of renters insurance. On move-in day, they provide the property manager with their certificate of insurance. The property manager probably does not review that certificate to make sure that all the required criteria is on there. Four months after a resident moves in, they might cancel for non-payment. We saw that play out a handful of times. Resident would move in. Four months later, there's a kitchen fire due to resident negligence. We go to fall back on that resident's renter's insurance policy to cover our deductible. And unbeknownst to us, it was canceled for non-payment. We wrap up talking about how solving real problems and scratching your own itch makes your product differentiated and allows for faster scaling when it comes to software products. We truly understood what property management companies needed and our competitors don't, which has given us the ability to scale real quickly. We've built a really interesting product delivery mechanism, which is offering the compliance for free, which results in a lot more people in our program. Josh and I had a ton of fun talking with Jay. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike. It's Josh and I in the booth today. Josh, what's going on? Not too much, man. Uh, I watch people at WeWork today get stuck in an elevator, so I think I'm just grateful I wasn't on that elevator. And uh, outside of that... <laughs> How long were they stuck on the elevator? I think it was a solid hour. They in there for a while. The power went out in the entire, like, half of the short north or something. Mm -hmm. Have you heard, like, so... Tyler, our friend Tyler, they got stuck in an elevator in Vegas. Did you hear that story? I did hear that story. That I'm not sure it's a podcast appropriate story. Probably not from a podcast from what I do story, recall. But people get crazy when they get stuck in elevators. That's What's the it. weight today? Let's hear the real story. Oh, it's the weight today. So last time I checked, it was Sunday, 158.8. Oh, we only check on Sundays now. Huh? We weigh in on Sundays. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we weigh in, well, Sunday's weigh-in day. Sounds like something down, shady's happening. I'm down 10 pounds. I don't understand why you're over here dogging. Well, that's water weight, dude. Now the real stuff starts. Right, right. But uh, that's enough about my weight. Let's talk Your about- Your cheeks look bloated still. Oh, do they? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, you can keep yeah, going. That was a little that, too- That was, that was too, too sensitive. Too I could feel it. I could feel it. <laughs> uh, so today on the show- uh, Well, okay. I'm going to pause now because I'm, I'm thrown off by Josh calling out my chubby cheeks here. So today on the show- We've got Jay Harkrider joining us, and Jay is the managing director of Foxen, a software company that started focusing on helping property managers better track and manage renters' insurance across their tenants. And over just a few years, Foxen has evolved into a fintech company providing innovative financial solutions for residential and commercial real estate companies. On top of being managing director of Foxen, Jay is also the managing director of Coastal Ridge Real Estate Partners and Peak Property Group. 
We're excited to be talking with Jay about his journey, how Foxing came to be, and where it's heading. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jay. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us today. And so we were talking earlier, and you're in Columbus now, but you also split time between here and California. Uh, I do. Is that a lot of travel? It's a lot of travel. So it's a long I'm, flight. I'm uh, it's a long flight. Actually, I have a really good path. I live mm-hmm. in Santa Barbara, California, part time here. The other part of the time, primarily Santa Barbara. Now I was I went to Dublin Kaufman High School. Mm-hmm. So been in Dublin, went down to Miami of Ohio for for school. Came back to Columbus. I was in Columbus for about 15 years, and uh, found my way out to Santa Barbara through an acquisition with one of our real estate companies, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of began to split my time at that point. Uh, it was about two years ago that ultimately decided to make the move to Santa Barbara, primarily for my wife, yeah. honestly. Yeah. The weather's not bad either though. So weather's not bad. Is Santa, is Santa Barbara north or south? I got to close to that mic. It's like, uh, 80 miles north of LA. Yeah. Okay. So, and right on the coast then. I it assume. is. Yep. It is. So, but I also have a house here in Grandview. And LA so. is, LA is north of San Diego. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nah. Here you live in, uh, you're from San Diego. Yeah. Oh that's my right. God. No way. <laughs> that's right. But uh, I was explaining more for Josh's sake because he's bad with geography. So I'm sure right. he, when you said 80 minutes north of LA, he's right. like, right. okay, that right. sounds- Where's LA? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm bad with geography. I'm not brain numb. I get... <laughs> anyway, so were your parents Columbus natives as well? Were they born and raised here? So my mom was from Mansfield. I was actually born in Houston, Texas. Mm. Uh, moved up here when I was seven into Dublin, which has changed significantly yeah. over the last 35 years, I guess. Um, but- Went to Dublin Kaufman High School. So essentially grew up in that area. Like I said, down to Miami back. So most of my family, especially on my mom's side, is from Ohio. And uh, I consider myself, you know, Ohio native. And in Miami, you study finance? I did finance and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And you finish up and did you jump right into entrepreneurship or what did you do after you So I didn't. Done? So uh, I jumped into, first I took a job at Cintas, which... Miami, a lot of your listeners, I imagine, went to Miami. It's Richard T. Farmer Business School, which was uh, founder of Cintas. So took a job at Cintas for about two years. I remember, honestly, my, my, my first day deciding it wasn't quite the right fit for me. But in talking to my father, he suggested that I stick it out for at least a year and give it an honest shot. So I did that. I was there for about a year and a half and ultimately began to realize that I had an interest in real estate. So interviewed with brokers, some banks, ultimately decided to take a job at Fifth Third. I was in a rotational program and began to focus specifically on commercial real estate pretty quickly. Built a reasonable skill set in the real estate space. This was 2004 to 2007 or eight. It was a really kind of booming time in the real estate space, Uh, specifically downtown. There were a lot of condos that were built during that time, a big push to get multifamily into downtown Columbus. So it was fun to be a part of that on the finance side. Around that same time, my business, one of my business partners, Andy Lolithan, and I began doing real estate on the side. And as we we both had kind of both actually were entrepreneurship minors at, at Miami and had aspirations to do something on our own, start a business together. And it was a weekend warrior type thing initially, bought our first duplex in 2007 and got a crazy idea to start a real estate company company in 2009 and leave our jobs. So that's what we did. And so how did that play out once you decided to take the full leap? Yeah, so my parents were very concerned. We we're in the depths of the, the recession at that point. And uh, we, we believed in ourselves at the time we had five units under management. And I, I left my job in, I think it was April of 2009 to 
begin to build a property management platform, we believe that the property management side of the business would kind of like keep the lights on for us because it was consistent residual income. And the investment side of the business, the acquisition side would kind of be the big pops whenever those occurred, but we knew that that would be a little more cyclical. So I built the management side. Andy was still working full-time and uh, we were, so he was helping us transact deals to add to the management platform and begin to form some joint venture investment partnerships with generally friends and family. Over those six or seven months that I was solo, we were able to build the business to about a hundred units. And he left his job in December of 2009. And we built, began to build, Peak Property Group is the name of that company. We began to build that together, primarily duplexes, four unit buildings, single family homes, primarily around Ohio State University. So we scaled that to about 250 or 300 units between 2009 and 2012. And that's when we had the opportunity to purchase a larger community in Muncie, Indiana. Ball State mm-hmm. University, which got us started with the Coastal Ridge business, which was kind of our second foray, kind of bigger foray into real estate. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of like university area buildings and homes that, I mean, there's got to be some, I know that, I know what I was like in college. Right. So I know that there's got to be a lot that goes into the calculation when it comes to profits and like when it comes to the business plan, right? Like you're going to have to put some work into these homes year over year to make sure they stay in good condition. Has that been a big part of that challenge in like the early stages of like, or was that not as much of an impact as I would think it would be? It was an impact, but people, I think, overestimate the costs related to the the damage Mm -hmm. that occurs in student housing. Certainly there's a little more damage than you experience on the conventional side, but a lot of times it's also reflected in higher rents. Yep, You're typically, you're not renting by the bed at Ohio State University in the kind of non-institutional space. However, you think about a, a home on Lane Avenue with six or seven bedrooms, you're probably generating $3,500 in rent. So yeah, you have some operating expenses to cover, but it, it wasn't as substantial as people, I think, a lot of times thought it would be. Mm-hmm. So those early days, were you guys more focused on appreciation or cash flow or both? And did you team up with a good bank on the backside to help you finance all those transactions? So since my experience was previously working in the commercial real estate industry, it, it was Fifth Third Bank is where I was working. We were able to kind of leverage that experience to find debt to help us get these small joint ventures done. Again, they were very small acquisitions. So $200,000 to $400,000 deals, you're raising, call it forty dollars to $60,000. And generally we were able to find that through friends and family. And so at the time I would say it was more cash flow focused. We've always been a cash flow focused investor, which interestingly, I feel like you can find good cash flow, especially here when I compare it to California. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so I would say cash flow focused, but we've seen a lot of appreciation over the last decade and a half. That makes a lot of sense. So what time frame are we talking about here when we're talking about really starting and building these, this initial portfolio? Like I said, left my job in 2009. Okay. So, we so built, we're right after. Right after we were buying stuff, the cost basis was incredibly low. Not a bad time to be buying. Candidly, we were able to make a lot of mistakes, which we did. Mm-hmm. And still fall into good deals because we were buying at such great basis. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So, about. I was like, hey, where, where's 2007, 2008 yeah. happening so in this the, story? The first deal, the first duplex that I had mentioned that we bought in 2007, it's honestly the worst deal we've ever done. Mm-hmm. We paid $107,000 for, for the duplex in 2007. And I think we sold it randomly maybe five years ago for, for like 80,000 bucks. Jeez. <laughs> so, uh, but after that, we took a pause had the recession, began to buy pretty aggressively post-recession. 
and well, I guess in the midst of the recession and were able to buy a lot of good deals that really mm. got, you know, that got us started. What were some of those other mistakes in the early days? Like if you can reflect back and it was a couple of years ago and think about when you guys thought maybe it wasn't going to make it or when you had your downtime, it's easy to reflect back and you see the success and think that it came so easy, but I'm sure that there were some challenging moments throughout that process. Absolutely. So I would say that one thing that we reflected on over the years, and we ultimately are so happy we we persevered, was actually building a management platform. We believed that building a management platform was necessary. And again, that residual income was important to us to keep the lights on. It took a little pressure off of us. But there were times when, because it's very difficult, the hiring process, just generally the X's and O's of building a management platform are, are difficult and trying and the profitability is not substantial. So that was uh, part of our business that we sometimes questioned whether we were making the best decision and it was the best use of our time to build that platform versus just focus on being an asset manager, raising capital and doing deals and hiring third party. I look back today and I, I wouldn't do it any other way because I believe that our original thesis, as far as understanding, truly understanding and being able to manage and dictate the business plan and execute the business plan because we had the management company was uh, hugely valuable to us. And it also enabled our ability to find equity because equity really liked the idea of it all being in-house and us controlling it versus us being like a lot of other groups saying, hey, we're the best manager of your money. And trust us, we'll find, you know, we'll find a property manager, we'll will add value. It's very hard to different yourself. But if you if you have it all in-house and you're actually again able to execute that business plan with your team that you hire and work with. It makes a difference, and I think it resonates with especially institutional capital. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And so you guys found Peak, uh, you get that rolling, it's going well. And then what eventually gets you? I know you mentioned, I, th I think if I heard correctly, you acquired Coastal and that's what took you over to the West Coast. Did I catch that wrong? No, no. So in 2012, we had the opportunity to purchase a scattered site property that was 330 units. Mm -hmm. So when I say scattered site, it was really seven separate properties totaling 330 units. So it was kind of a hybrid between a single site community, like a typical traditional apartment community and scattered site portfolio. The portfolio that we had built with Peak was smaller, single family homes, duplexes, et cetera. So we were able to go out. We began essentially almost cold calling for capital, but it was a big check for us at the time. Ultimately, we were able to find a family office that gave us a chance. And we executed that deal in 2012 that got us kind of transitioned to the more institutional side of the multifamily space. So at that same time, we began, we picked up two additional partners Patrick McBride was also a roommate of myself and Andy's at Miami. He was previously in the private equity space, and we felt that he would bring value based on his experience in that space and working with institutional capital, which we hadn't previously done. Ben Texler was one of my best friends, grew up with me in, in Dublin, Ohio, and he had his ex experience as well on the institutional investment side. So we picked both of those guys up to help us and parlayed our success with that first acquisition 
into purchasing a second acquisition. We actually picked up a third-party management assignment in, in, in Santa Barbara mm -hmm. with a big institutional student housing player out of Chicago. And again, just kind of begin to leverage that credibility to build Coastal to what it is today. So fast forward to today, Coastal Ridge is, we have 30, 33,000 units between student housing beds and conventional units. Our portfolio is about 4 billion in assets and about 800 employees. So we really scaled that over, you know, about a decade collectively between the four of us. During that time, I also had an opportunity to get out to the West Coast. We actually opened an office related to our capital markets side of our business and found that it was beneficial for us to have offices both on the West Coast and here in Columbus from a recruitment standpoint. You say so lightly, almost we pass over growing to, you said 6 billion or 4 billion? 4 billion. 4 billion under management and 800 employees. And doing right. that in what, 10 years? About 10 years. That's, I mean, like that's incredible. So how, and amongst four people and in, no acquisitions in the process other than the assets, obviously that you're, you're acquiring. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, it, that's a story in itself and as, you know, obviously a huge amount of effort and hard work for us. Uh, it was, it was fun. I think that candidly, part of it is luck. Like you guys talked about, we, I think we started at the right time. We were able to buy deals at really low basis and make some mistakes along the way, but we got better and better at what we were doing. And I think that we picked right as far as our business partners. We all bring a different skill set to the table that makes us unique and gives us a greater opportunity to succeed in what we do. And it's, yeah, it's been fun. And then my last question on that one, then we jump into Fox. And as you're reflecting back on getting those deals and getting people to trust you with the equity, after you were built that portfolio with Peak and then you were having success there, was that really the leverage point that allowed more and more people to do larger deals and bring more equity to the table and bigger checks and bigger players? So it's a different type of investor. Obviously, when you're investing in the deals that we do through Coastal Ridge, which are more traditional multifamily, think 250-unit apartment community with a pool and a clubhouse, uh, dedicated staff. And so those equity checks range, obviously, depending on the, the cost of the acquisition. But typically, you were working with more institutional capital on the Coastal Ridge side, whereas Peak Property Group, is more friends and family, $25,000 checks. So mm -hmm. we were able to leverage the experience and perspective that we had in building Peak to kind of graduate to the institutional space. And again, like I had said earlier, I think one of the things that institutions really loved about our business and I think resonated with them was the fact that we started with a duplex. Yeah, And so we lived and breathed this business from the very kind of ground floor to where it is today. Yeah, and before we move on to Foxen, I'm going to ask one clarifying question because I got a feeling there's some listeners out there wondering. Institutional investment gets thrown around a lot on this podcast. I don't think we've ever had anybody define exactly what, what they mean when they say institutions or institutional money. So when you talk about institutional investments, what are, are we talking about family offices, right? Or are we talking about you know, some of the big players like BlackRock and like those types of institutions, like what type of institutions are we talking about? Exactly. All of the above. Mm -hmm. So it's the family offices up to the, you know, the Blackstones and the Goldmans. Mm -hmm. And so it's just for lack of a better word, it's smart capital that's looking to get, get money out. That's working yeah. for individuals as well as pension funds, life insurance companies. So a wide range of, of capital partners. Right. So people who have a large amount of assets that they need to spend in some way and get moving. Correct. Makes total sense. So moving on to Fox and let's talk about how a bunch of folks who have $4 billion in real estate assets decide, hey, we want to get a software company going. What I'm guessing you're scratching your own itch in a few ways with this product, but what was kind of the inspiration 
the, yeah. the start off point for this. So I had never anticipated getting into the insurance space and Foxen was not on my radar. So I thought I'd be a real estate guy forever. I still love the real estate space, of course. In 2017, 2018, we were approached by uh, our insurance provider and they suggested that we should consider establishing what's called a captive. It's essentially self-insurance. And we weren't at the time talking about renter's insurance necessarily, but we began to circle renter's insurance because we're a large company, but in the grand scheme of things, we're not massive. Mm -hmm. So we began to look at renter's insurance and at the time we were managing about 14,000 units. So that's 14,000 residents that were purchasing renter's insurance through State Farm, Progressive, et cetera. And we're like, gosh, there might be an opportunity for us to offer an in-house solution. And we began to kind of head down that path and ultimately decided to establish a captive and begin to offer renter's insurance on our own. So we began to interview administrators that were going to administrate this program for us. Again, like I mentioned, I didn't have any intention to get into the insurance space, let alone the, the insurance compliance space. So begin to inter interview administrators and quickly realized there was not anybody in our space that truly understood property management and the fact that property managers don't have the time to chase renters for renters insurance. And then also what I call kind of a dirty secret in the property management industry that everybody requires renters insurance, but nobody actually has a good way to manage the compliance of renters insurance. So classic scenario, renter moves in, on move-in day, they provide the property manager with their certificate of insurance that says they have $100,000 of property liability coverage, as an example. The property manager probably does not review that certificate to make sure that all the required criteria is on there. And then guaranteed over the term of the lease, there's an even lesser chance that, almost no chance that they're going to manage the compliance of that policy. So for example, four months after a resident moves in, they might cancel for non-payment. The property manager is never going to know. Mm -hmm. So we saw that play out a handful of times at Coastal Ridge where a resident would move in. Four months later, there's a kitchen fire due to resident negligence. We go to fall back on that resident's renter's insurance policy to cover generally our deductible. And unbeknownst to us, it was canceled for non-payment. So we realized because there were no administrators in the space that mm -hmm. understood our business, we needed to solve for that internally. So again, at this time, it was still, we were solving just for ourselves. We didn't have an anticipation of commercializing the solution. So we did that, began to work really well. And Marsh, who is our captive manager, they're a big international broker. They came to me and they're like, Jay, we think that you've solved an industry problem and we think you should commercialize it. And we would support the solution by referring our customers to you guys. So I took a step back and I was like, wow, there could be an opportunity for us to do something here. Yeah, that's not bad. We'll take those referrals. Right. So essentially that was 2019 or so that they came to me and suggested that we commercialize it. And that's when I got serious about beginning to commit more of my time. Now I'm full-time Foxen. And that was kind of the beginning of the 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 growth path for, for Foxen. And so you start to commit more of your time. What are the first steps you take to turn this into an entity of its own and take it from that zero to one phase. It was it was already maybe like zero to, to a half. And then yeah. you take it to the half to the one and then start scaling. First step, again, after I interviewed these administrators is I pulled one guy on my team and I said, hey, you're going to manage this for Coastal Ridge. And that was that. And he and myself and a guy that we tapped to do some engineering, some development work to build a little like very poorly built <laughs> portal to manage this program for us. 
we're kind of cobbling it together. When Marsh came to us and suggested that we seriously consider commercializing the solution, we ultimately began to, I began to invest a little more time in it. And we actually looked to hire a developer full-time to begin to further build out our, our portal and the technology that's required for us to do this. It became a lot more complicated though when we realized we needed to integrate with multiple property management softwares. And then of course, build an interface that at the time, the property managers that we were working working for could use to manage this program from their side. So we ultimately hired two, three, four people, begin to work on selling this in 2000, I think it was 19, and picked up a couple customers and obviously begin to generate revenue to further justify the you know, a, a pretty aggressive hiring plan. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, and we're now at maybe 50 to 55 unique customers, a little over 200,000 units that we're managing for, and uh, 40 full-time employees. So this was a business that we basically built with cash flow. We don't have any mm-hmm. funding today. We're just now actually going through a Series A. So we're really excited about that. Yeah. And it's going to kind of take us to the next level and allow us to do a lot of things. You know, our team of 40 people today includes uh, quite a few developers. So we've actually rebuilt our platform three times now. And we built it to be multi-product. And again, uh, also changed the way we approached the solution. Mm -hmm. We originally built it and required our site-level teams, the property managers, essentially, to be involved in the process of managing the compliance of renter's insurance. Because I come from that space, I knew that the reality is in a perfect world, this would be frictionless at the site level for property managers. So we rebuilt the portal and essentially built out our team in a way that we take all responsibility away from the property managers. And we manage that compliance of renter's insurance. And then also we offer our solution embedded in the lease signing process. So it's been uh, it's been a fun experience, mm-hmm. totally different than the real estate space that you know that I was previously playing in. Yeah, and we're really excited about what we're doing. Hey everybody, Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus, and we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies. It grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. One of the toughest things with software products, especially early on, is how do you price it? Right. That's a question that I think a lot of software founders and entrepreneurs struggle with is like, what's the right way? Do I do a licensed user approach? Do I do it on a per unit basis? Do I do it on a square footage basis? Like, but so how'd you guys go about doing that? And do you feel like you're in a good place today? Yeah. So our pricing is, is interesting because again, we wanted this to be a no brainer for property management companies. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, we've built a solution that checks every box there. So our solution eliminates risk at the site level. So risk of loss, generally that loss is the gap between zero to whatever their deductible is. 
The solution also eliminates all time that has to be invested in this at the site level. So it saves their staff time. And it also, from a pricing standpoint, we only generate money on the people that actually purchase policies through Foxen. And the site level staff, or I'm sorry, the property management companies don't, don't pay anything. So they only pay us if people are purchasing policies through our solution. Mm-hmm. And there is something that's kind of interesting. We continue to talk about our pricing because it's actually inverse of what you would think. So we do work in managing third-party policies, but we actually only get paid for those that purchase policies through us, through the lease signing process. So our addendum that offers the renter's insurance waiver, it's embedded in the lease signing process. So when somebody signs up for the lease, they're automatically into our program. Right. The way they get out of our program is by providing a third-party policy. Typically about 30% of our renters provide a third-party policy. I was about to ask that. So you, you read my mind. Yeah. So it's actually conventional. It's about 30% student housing. It's about 10% people provide third-party policies in the student housing space, 30% in the conventional. That's primarily because in the conventional space, Traditionally, there are a lot of renters that already have an established mm-hmm. insurance relationship with somebody, whereas in student housing, you typically don't see that. Yeah. And so now I'm curious for students that do have your renter's insurance to come in and like, this is probably their first renter's insurance policy right. they've ever had. Do they have the opportunity to stick with you guys as they move forward? Yeah. Great question. We're not there yet. Okay. So we're a B2B to C. So we sell to the property management mm-hmm. companies. We essentially solve a problem for them, which again is that compliance the risk management piece, the compliance piece. And we're also able to generate revenue mm-hmm. for, for our property management partners. We have talked a lot about offering, now we have 200,000 people that we're monitoring for, giving them a convenient way to purchase renter's insurance from us when when they move out of a Fox and monitored property. So that is one of, so we haven't talked about some of the other products that we've built since we started Foxen, mm-hmm. but that is a big opportunity that we believe is in our, our near future to tackle. Makes perfect sense, right? Like, hey, I've already got a renter's insurance policy through you guys. If I could just maintain that and move forward now, now you're building up both, you know, and, and what I'm curious about now that I think about it is why do people say no when you call them and, and how are you finding new customers and adding people? Do you have a sales team? What's that look like? And, and when you get an objection, when someone says, no, no, I don't want this, what, what, what in the world are they saying? There's no reason to say no. A lot of times the reason renter's insurance compliance is a problem in our space is the same reason that sometimes it's difficult for us to sell the solution because property management companies are focused on a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. And so the no is usually not a no. It's just a, I don't have the time to focus on this right now, but we now have 10 salespeople. We're growing our team. We're going to add another five to six, begin to focus on some strategic salespeople, national accounts, sales, sales team members. And I think that we've seen so far this year, we've sold 10 additional accounts in a very short amount of time. So we're beginning to really see some momentum and acceleration as far as the number of accounts that we're closing. So I think that I think that 2022 is going to be a really exciting year for Foxen. Awesome. I think what's so cool about the story is kind of the organic like serendipity of it all. Mm-hmm. So you you start off and you're you're going after your passion with these multifamily and uh smaller units and then you grow that into the clout to start doing institutional money and, and large scale units and all of a sudden you see that there's this compliance issue and it's like Maybe you could start a company just going after compliance, but it's like the fact that you guys had that financial backing and already you weren't dependent on this compliance thing working out to bring in revenue in the door. So then it's like, okay, all of a sudden now we have a bunch of traction and clout inside of this compliance market. Oh, by the way, we also have an insurance product that we can roll out, which is almost 
uh, to arguably maybe a, a third company yep. of it all. And again, just it's another thing that where it's like you didn't have to be dependent on it and it creates this competitive advantage where yeah. if somebody wanted to step in and grow that organically, it would have to be extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean, essentially what was interesting about, about Foxen is we solved for a professional problem that we were experiencing and we looked at the competition and the others that were in this space trying to tackle the same thing. And we felt like our big differentiator is that we truly understood what property management companies needed and our competitors don't, which has given us the ability to scale real quickly. And I think that we've built a really interesting product delivery mechanism, which is offering our product through the lease signing process and essentially offering the compliance for free, which inherently results in a lot more people in our program because if they don't have third-party insurance, they have our product, Mm -hmm. but we also give them an easy way to purchase our product. And a lot of people honestly don't care that much about renter's insurance, so it's the easy button. So they hit the easy button, they ultimately purchase through us. Yeah, We took a step back and we're like, okay, this is what kind of the future of Foxen took a step back and we're like, okay, this is a really interesting time in people's lives. If you think about it, signing a lease and moving into an apartment is a pretty pivotal time for people. And there's a lot of things that they might need or want. So as an example, of course, renter's insurance was our first product. And I think we've done a good job tackling that. We continue to figure out ways to make it better. We'll continue to do that. So we also feel that renters have an, a right and would be interested in building their credit score by paying their rent on time. And what's crazy, mortgage holders, their mortgage payments get reported to the agencies, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. Whereas renters, typically their rent, which is their biggest payment of the month, is not reported to the agencies. Renters, of course, aspire to purchase home at some point, purchase a car, get credit cards, et cetera. So we felt like there was a huge opportunity to offer a credit builder product. We also believe that you've probably seen some of the security deposit alternative products that are out there. People would prefer to not have to fork over a, a month of rent that sits in a depository account with the landlord for 12 months. So we're building an alternative to a traditional security deposit. And we believe there could be an awesome opportunity in the consumer loan space as well. So we took a look at like that delivery ne- mechanism that we built for the renter's insurance space And we said, hey, there's some other interesting products that we might be able to offer to residents that would be helpful. And so that is now kind of our primary focus is beginning to bring those additional products to market. Mm -hmm. The first one is, it's called Rentistry. We're really excited about it. It's a credit builder product. Like I said, we believe that it's honestly a right for renters to be able to at least have their rent payment reported to the agencies if they choose. So we're able to offer them a solution to to get that done. And our data suggests the average renter will see a credit score increase of between 25 and 50 points based on 12 on-time payments. When I kind of said we took a step back and we looked at this delivery mechanism and this interesting point in people's lives and thought there was some opportunity to create some additional products that would be to their benefit, we we set our motto is we want to build products that are mutually beneficial to the resident and the landlord and are centered on financial wellness. So that, that's kind of our mission at this point is to, to build products that are mutually beneficial to the resident landlord, which our first product, the renter's insurance compliance product checks that box. The credit builder product, which like I said, is called rent history, checks that box. It's mutually beneficial official for both sides. And they both are centered around that, that, that focus on financial wellness. So focus in general is such an interesting thing with your, your guys' approach and strategy is like you would see most people get ripped in a lot of pieces trying to roll out this many products and this quickly. But I think 
uh, and I'd love to hear if you think I'm completely wrong, but it's like, because you're not B to C, even all the products revolve around C, but your B doesn't change. You guys are still going to the property managers and delivering the array of products through that. So it allows you guys to spread yourself in more revenue generating dire- directions without losing focus of who your ultimate customer is. Right. And and we've been really methodic about, I, I kind of rattled off those products, but it's been a few years now. And so we spent a lot of time refining the renter's insurance compliance tool and the renter's insurance product itself. And just last year, we looked at the additional products that we felt there was an opportunity to bring to market. And we decided Credit Builder could be really impactful, absolutely financial wellness focused. And so we spent a year building that product, getting approval through TransUnion and Equifax and Experian to actually report data to them and are just now rolling out that product. We have about 20,000 units that are that are using that Credit Builder product now. We believe that there could be a bigger opportunity than the renter's insurance solution that we've built specific to, to Rentistry. Because again, I think it's the right thing to do for renters. And the data speaks for itself as far as the credit score increase. If you think about a 50-point increase mm-hmm. for somebody that's 24 years old, it's really, really meaningful, let alone students that are graduating from Ohio State, as an example, that truly don't have a credit score. So they're not scorable when they when they graduate in some cases. We're giving the opportunity for s- students that are unscorable to become scorable and be able to get that first credit card or first car loan. Mm-hmm. So we think it, there, there's a lot of, of opportunity to... Uh, to expand with 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 that product. Who bears the cost on that? Is it the consumer? So we have two 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 solutions. One solution the landlord has the option to pay for. So we call that our our property amenity model. So for landlords, one of the benefits to them is that it does incentivize their residents to pay them on time. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a benefit there. And again, it it is the right thing to do. There's also, I don't know if you guys have heard much about ESG environmental, social, government mm-hmm. uh, f- focus. This is a sh- social positive impact. It's very big in the, especially the institutional investment space that you need to be thinking about ESG related to your business practices in general. So there's a very big big focus on positive social impact. It's the responsibility of institutions and corporations to put some focus there, which is a motive for them for the resident, of course, it, it it benefits them, and they might look at it as as again a, a property amenity, which is why we call it the property amenity model. Mm-hmm. If a landlord doesn't want to pay for the solution, we can't force them to do so. So, in our opinion, they may as well at least offer the resident the ability to take advantage of it if they want. So that's our resident pay model. So you can do it either way. The landlord ultimately decides if if they're going to pay for it, and if they don't, then you default to the resident pay model. So you talked about 55 individual customers, if I remember that right. And the total adjustable market, you guys suspect if you're just focusing on maybe U.S. and Canada, or maybe it's just the U.S., how many out there fit within the range that are a good fit for you guys and that you're going after? So we manage properties as, or I guess portfolios as low as, Tip, our, our target's 500 on the low end. We, we have some instances where we, and we've even talked about dropping below that potentially, but typically the threshold is about 500 units. We honestly, we want to figure out a way to solve for, for less. Our largest customer is 85,000 units. Mm -hmm. So a wide range. I'd say our bread and butter is again, 500 to 5,000. It's just a nice sweet spot. 
the what we found is when you go below that 500 unit threshold, there's it's not enough scale to even sometimes justify full-time team members. So you don't necessarily have anybody working full-time in the business if you have a portfolio of 200, 200 units, debatable at 200 units. So at 500, you start to have enough scale to have a couple people on a team that are full-time focused on the business. And of course, as you scale up, you know, that that's more and more the case. And I realized, I remembered my question now. So you mentioned you're raising a series A currently, which typically if you're raising a series A, that means that there's some type of exit plan or a strategy for the future. Have you thought about in the long term, right? IPO, some type of exit, like have you thought about it or considered that at all at this point? Or are you guys kind of, hey, let's see where we can take this thing? Yeah. So I went to New York City last November to talk to investment banks and contemplate what we wanted to do with this business. Like I said, it was not my intention to get into the insurance or the fintech space. And I sat down with a private equity firm. I was getting calls on a weekly basis from PE firms. And for no rhyme or reason, I'd take some calls and I'd just not take others. And it was usually based on how busy I was. And they put a really interesting offer in front of us. I think that one thing that a lot of private equity firms really appreciate about bootstrap businesses is if you can efficiently grow and you're capital efficient, cash flow positive, which we are, without the help of outside investors, it's, I think, a very attractive attractive acquisition for them or partnership. So I took a step back and I was like, you know what, I'm having a ton of fun building this. I love the team that, that, that we've built over the last three years. I even feel an obligation to see this through for my team because we're all having so much fun and we believe in what we're building. So we talked internally, myself and, and my partners, and I knew that if we go through this, uh, I'm signing up for another four or five years, but I'm 41 years old and I'm also, I love entrepreneurship and building businesses. So what else am I going to do with my time? There's some other things I guess I could find find to do with my time, but uh, I'm, I'm enjoying what we're doing and I see a lot of opportunity. So we're going to, we're going to go down this path, finish. We, our target is to close on a series A in the next month or two. And then we'll have some, what I'm excited about is working with some more smart people that are going to bring great ideas to the table and further the business. And we'll see where it goes. Makes complete sense. And, uh, you know, Jay, I think that's a good place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show, unless Josh over there has got any more up in that noggin. Got nothing left. Okay. Well, uh, the first one is you have any advice for our listeners. So a lot of our listeners, right? They're in Columbus, young professionals, entrepreneurs, people who might be considering becoming an entrepreneur. So would you have any advice for, for those out there that are listening? Well, I think a, a great start is to get perspective in listening uh, to, to, to podcasts like this one. So, so subscribe right now. So subscribe. Yeah, thank you. And I, I would also, sounds generic, but I would say definitely focus on doing something that you love. Like I said, when we first got into this business, there was a true passion for real estate and a passion for building businesses. And I don't feel like when I go to work, it's work. It's a lot of fun. And I think that that's really important. So don't, don't, don't be scared to take some risks and follow, follow your passion. And generally, I think success follows. So Jay, our last question of the show centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. So without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? So I, th I think living uncomfortably is, is about taking calculated risks. And to me, you only live once. So taking risks transcends, ultimately results in very interesting experiences, a steep learning curve, and in my opinion, is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. 
So to me, I think it it means yeah, taking chances, uh, calculated chances, and creating your own path. Makes complete sense. Well, Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time on the show. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your story and talking about boxing. Appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you like that episode, if you want to hear more, just like it. Like we mentioned, I promise I didn't have Jay plug that uh, intentionally. Hit that subscribe button. And uh, again, share us with your friends. It really does help. All that support helps. Appreciate you tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.